America, Washington, D.C., signing on. When the Santa's Welcome to another episode of Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org. Brushbeater Training and Consulting, hosted by me, NC Scout, the author of The Gorilla's Guide to the Bow Thing Radio, which as of today, 29 October 2023, is still number one in three respective categories on Amazon.com. But uh, anyway, that's enough about all of that. Of course, this podcast is brought to you in part by that and Brushbeater Diet Store over there. Got to give a shameless plug to the store, all the, the coolest stuff in the world over there. We've got optics, we've got radios, we've got knowledge, we've got everything. And of course, training. Uh, 2024 training dates are going up on the calendar. Now, I'm sitting here with the most popular guest that I've ever had on this show. Uh, last Sunday, we were together on air, did a killer podcast, mind-blowing. That was the second one that we've done together. Had him on for Sons of Liberty Live last Thursday, and I can say that once we got the tech issues worked out, thoroughly enjoyed the hour and 10 minutes or so uh, that he was on that he really just was throwing those knowledge bombs out there and this podcast i told him last sunday hey we're gonna have you back on for another hour this coming sunday because there was there was a whole bunch of stuff on my list that i wanted to get to uh on the last podcast that we just didn't because reasons because you're just you're throwing out so much out there and uh, needed to have you on for a second one. And you so graciously blessed us with your time. Of course, I am talking about the author of The Eternal War and As Rome Burns, Mr. E.M. Burlingame. How are you doing this evening, brother? Doing all right. And you? Oh, man, I am well. Way better than I deserve on a Sunday evening. <laughs> On the East Coast, yeah. East Coast. It's been it, it's been pretty warm here. Uh, warmer, warmer than I like for late October. We we had a, a wonderful cold snap, and uh, actually felt like fall, and it, it kicked all the leaves into high gear, and we had all the turning, and everything was looking beautiful, and then it turned warm again. Ah, not into this. <laughs> Not into 80 degrees in late October, man. It's not cool. But, uh, yeah, it, it is. I remember doing Sears school in December. And oh. It got down to 
I don't know, 18 degrees or so. It was a rather enjoyable experience with quotation marks around that. Yeah. <laughs> but this seer school in general is just a very enjoyable experience. It's just... I was like my childhood with my insane, violent mother. <laughs> boots, boots. Just boots, with some, re you Moving know. up and down again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's no discharge in a war. <laughs> Yeah, she just uh, didn't. She she didn't have the uh, she didn't have the wonderful poetry playing in no, the background. No, or the loud the music, or working. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's good time. Uh, she'd been broken in her own time, so I'm I'm not. This wasn't a uh, yeah. uh, negative assessment of my mother. She did the best she could, but but uh, yeah, Sears School was. No big deal. I also went through in my mid forties, so oh. wasn't wasn't as big a shock of an experience. It was one actually. I, I will say this. <clears throat> excuse me. It is the best done school of any type that I've ever attended. There's Sears yeah. School, Sears C on Bragg. There, uh, yeah, is one of the best schools I've ever ever attended. So I have a lot of respect. Yeah, I uh, I did a podcast not too long ago. It was back, I think it was back in July or maybe early August um, with uh, Brian Morris, who was on the, the CRC Council. He was a, a longtime instructor there. And he's, yeah, I know he's Brian. written some books. Oh, yeah. you know him? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh right on. From man. years ago. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had no idea yeah. you knew him. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's, he's not too far from me and, no. uh, tried to, we, he originally, he was going to come hang out for the recce course mm. and, um, just hang out for the, for the night ops because we, we talked through the exercises and he, uh, he was like, man, that is really cool. Uh, that, that, you know, you, you take civilians from zero on, you know, during the scout course and all of a sudden during the recce course, literally five days later, they're doing a, a nighttime LZ seizure. Like that's pretty, and they do. Um, and they, you know, not only do they do that, but they send up a product uh, digitally over the radio before they do that. So they, they get a block of instruction on, you know, this is how you send a product with tablets and mouthing radio um, using one of the digital modes. And, you know, this is what you're going to send up and, um, and they do that and it it's it's really to me it's really impressive to see that and then you know all of a sudden bam you know and, and every class is just like they all rock it like you know it, it it it's really really cool and and uh having him and we were talking through that and of course we kicked the podcast out there um you know but um taking him around a farm and showing him the range and, you know, where all the training events were. Mm -hmm. he, he had some stuff here that uh, got in the way of this last one, but he will very likely be out in February. Very uh, cool. So we should get yeah. you out here too. <laughs> That's all the way across this. It. It's all the way across this continent here for me. It's a, it's a plane flight away, brother. It's, a plane, it's literally yeah. a plane flight. Man, you look, if you land at RDU, I will come pick you up. Come pick you, up. you don't have to worry about nothing. Well, I have to have some, have some other friends out there. I'd have to go 
talk to if I landed an RDU at any time. That's they would be right. rather miffed with me, shall we say, if I didn't stop and oh, say hi. Man. Well, <laughs> man, you, you can make it work, man. We can make we can make this work. Let's see how life goes. You you probably have if I told the world though that you would you would be coming to class, it'd probably be a bunch of people that just want to come to class to talk to you. Like I, I just want no, to talk. I know I'm not flying out because <laughs> I, I get a lot of questions like, man, you know, it's over on the forum and you know, it's it's I got a bunch of emails. I got an email from a guy today who is a um uh he's a doctor. And he, he is one of the most well-traveled people that I have ever had in class. I mean, this guy, is, he's been all over Nepal and northern China and um, just really, really incredible guy. And uh, um, he, he sent me an email that was literally just the title. There was no message in it. And it said, Ian Burlingame is awesome. That's it. That's the <laughs> And it was just, it was that in the Humble. title. Like, oh Humbled. man, dude, I'm gonna tell him this. I'm gonna tell him this. <laughs> Humbled. Because <laughs> the shit died. Nah, it, it, it's true, man. It's true. And and when you when you have people who have a long view of the world, of the how the world really is, not this canned nonsense, feel-good BS crap that we've been served in the United States for the past 50, 60 years or so. This, this cartoonish view of the world, um, but the way things really are, you, that, that is a breath of fresh air that I think uh, is spearheaded in many ways by yourself and the intellectualism that you bring to the table. And, of course, you have the academic chops to, bra to back that up. And of course, you have all the other prerequisite chops to say, I, you know, I'm, I am the true warrior poet. Uh, yeah so to speak. No, I mean, that's the way that I view you. Is well, I appreciate you, it, but you, you are a warrior poet. Someone that I learn from every time I listen to you. I heard this. I appreciate that. But I, I, I read something once when I was fairly young, uh, it might be apocryphal, but um, attributed to Einstein. And this was from the late 19 teens, 1920s. And people, somebody had said, you know, you're so intelligent, you know, how can we? And he said, I'm not that intelligent. He said, but when I get curious about something, I will stick with that thing and ignore everything else until I figure it out, even if it takes me years. And I've known a lot of people in my life who are way smarter than I am. But I'm that I've been that way since I was a kid. If something interests me, I will literally cut everything else out and study and research and talk and think and think and think and then test. And I'll stick with something for this very, the topics that we talk about. I've been stuck with those things for 40 some odd years. Some of them, uh, some of them I've been specifically on a single path since 2000, 2001 after meditating for 10 months. So it's, I'm no great poet and I'm not, you know, some big brain, et cetera, um, like Elon or some of these guys, but I have stuck with a couple themes, a couple questions that I've been trying to answer for 40, 50 years now. And one of them is, you know, the, the first one was, what does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. 
And then that was the first one when I was about six or seven years old. And that's really stuck with me. It took me down all kinds of paths I never thought I'd go. The other one, though, in 2000, 2001, when I was in Silicon Valley in tech, um, was where is this really taking us? Because it doesn't seem to be taking us where we where we techies you know when when the big money people from the east coast showed up and then some other folks from down in the washington dc belt loop shall we say showed up mm -hmm. it started to take things down a very different path and and i was really trying to figure out well where do i best apply myself to what is the real threat and I've been on that specific path, which is what got me into special forces in my 40s and investment banking and all these other things and algorithmic, you know, computational uh, finance capital, uh, algorithmic capital, depending on who you're talking to, and all these different pathways. It was that was the follow on to what does it mean to be human question from when I was a kid that I've been stuck on and I'm still stuck on that one. And then the other one, 20 some odd years ago, was what's the real threat and what do we need to address it? And so in terms of the long view, I, you know, that's 50 some odd years for the first question and 20 some odd years for the second question. <laughs> but I, I will say, you know, my mother, my biological mother, I, I'm, I'm adopted as a Berlin game, but you know, my, my biological mother is, is uh, an interesting person, but unmitigatingly brilliant lady. And, um, she told me something when I was very young um, in a harsh way, because that was her way. But um, she said, if you can't look back 35 to 4,500 years and look forward 1,500-ish years, you don't really know what the hell you're talking about. It's profound. And I've heard that in different ways and different articulations at different times to reinforce, but she had, cause she went to very good schools in Stad and Switzerland and all of this mm -hmm. when she was young and speak several languages, et cetera, <clears throat> including Nez Perce, <laughs> Nez wow. Perce, uh, Indian. Uh, but you know, that, that stuck with me all my, all my life. So that, you know, the question that I've stuck with these two questions, uh, and that you need to be able to look back 4,500 years to see the patterns because everything does, doesn't, what's that? doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Um, mm -hmm. So be able to look back 4,500 years and then be able to project out the next 15-ish hundred years the best you can to see how the pattern, right? Because 4,500 years is three of those 1,500-year patterns. And you should be able to, and it's interesting because the fourth turning, these things happen in cycles. Four and all. Mm -hmm. I'm not a numerology guy and all that, but anyways, point being is that if you can't look back 4,500 years and see the patterns to recognize where you are, and you can't then extrapolate out the next 1,500-ish years, at least loosely, you don't really know what, you, what you're looking at. Right. And not with any kind of, you know, high resolution or granularity. I mean, maybe you're looking at what you need to for what you're dealing with. But if you're really trying to, if you're trying to really understand where humanity is going and how you might best contribute to that, if you have higher capacities to contribute, because not everybody needs to do this ludicrous 5,000 
5,500 year or uh, 6,000 year kind of look. But if you have the capacities to do more, and this was the other thing my mother taught me when I was very young, she said, you have more, you were born with more, you were born with more capacities. And so you have a responsibility to use that for other people because their lives suck and their lives are hard. And you need to make sure at least that you don't make their lives harder. And then she also said separately that um, I could do whatever I wanted to, but I had to pay for it financially, physically, mentally, emotionally, and every other way I had to pay for it. So that's kind of yeah. how the, the long-term careful thinking got into me when I was very young. And then that got reiterated, like the, like the don't make their life harder. Uh, your job as an NCO, when I was a young NCO in the army decades ago, you know, yep. your job, I had a Vietnam era uh, NCO, uh, Nash, I think it was his name. He'd been a Marine, six deployments to five or six points of Vietnam as a Marine. Um, uh, before he came over the army in the seventies, and when all the reorganization, all that, anyways, he, Mm -hmm. He said the same thing that roughly that my mother had, which is, you know, these are your soldiers, their life sucks, their life's hard, and your job is to cover for them and keep them on the right path and do everything in your power to lessen the suck in their life. Yep. Nah, it, that that's that's a hundred percent. You know, it, it's it's sage advice. It's a say it's sage advice in both cases because that that prepares people for hardship. And in the first case, I think that dovetails extremely well with uh, a point that I wanted to get to in the last podcast that I really wanted to hammer home. Uh, you did a piece on your Substack that said, you know, we, we, essentially advocating for the, the return of true matriarchy. And I thought that that was a, a quite the profound piece when you directed me towards it and I read it. Uh, I thought that that was a profound piece because what most people consider patriarchy in contemporary society. Um, and I, I think this, the second part of, of this, what, what's predicated upon this part, is that liberal democracy is, is reaching its conclusion rapidly. Uh, but part of that is due to the diminished role and the diminished value of true matriarchy in our society. And that is that the, 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 the role of the mother, not in giving birth, not in the, uh, the fostering of, of a child during the the uh, uh, child rearing process, or uh, through through the pregnancy process rather, but actual child rearing, which is a whole different thing. You know, th there's a slang term that, that we say in, in the South that you know anybody can be a father, but it takes a man to be a dad. You know, and, and we say it a little different than that. You know, it takes a man to be a daddy. Uh, but it would, that, that applies to women too. Any woman can give birth, but it takes a real woman and a matriarch, especially with men to, to create women for sure, to create competent women and, and valuable women that, that are, you know, not going to 
sell themselves out on on OnlyFans and you know and, and just the social degradation that we see on, on a, 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 a that's ever present in our faces on a daily basis, but rather women who are actually up to the task of raising not just progenitors of the next generation of society, but also men who are the protectors of the next generation of society. And you have to have that, that role has been diminished. And I feel like uh, coming from a, a sociological background where I was served to a lot of feminism and, and gender studies crap. It's crap. It's crap on its face. It, it's, it's nonsense. And it's very much rooted in liberal democracy this is the the root ideas of liberal democracy, of this egalitarianism, but it completely miss misses the mark when it comes to the actual role and how valuable true matriarchy is in social structures, and it it undercuts all of that in this this false notion that women have to be the equivalent to men in all spaces. This is a ridiculous notion, and and we see where that has led, or that they have to be subservient to men. It's the same illusion, exactly, exactly. So, if you will take take us through uh, that piece that you wrote, expound upon it. Yeah, Um, I didn't have a father growing up. I had a very, again, I've already commented on her, but I had a very interesting mother. Um, very unique. Uh, she isolated us, <clears throat> excuse me, in the early 70s uh, when the Yom Kippur War broke out and we couldn't move to a kibbutz, which is what she wanted to do. Uh, she started a little commune up on the Canadian border in the Cascade Mountains and isolated my younger brother and I, and he's long since deceased, violently so, but um, so I had a lot of time with a very well-educated uh, European descent woman who had a very interesting view of the world and had been broken in certain ways by her own mother, um, my grandmother. Um, one of the interesting stories that's, that she you know, when we were doing the studies to go live in Israel, you have to study Aramaic, Hebrew, the Torah, and the Talmud. And one of the interesting stories that stuck with me all these years was the story of Lilith, which is, I don't know if you're familiar, but it's Adam's first wife. Yes. And Adam's first wife was made out of the same materials, so an equal to Adam, a peer. And and that, you know, as the loosely, you know, because I'm no scholar on this, but loosely, you know, the story goes that she didn't like being Adam's equal. She wanted to be his superior. And she didn't like the tasking that, you know, Yahweh had given her. She wanted Adam's job. But Adam was more uniquely um, designed and built for the task that he was given and, and the tasks that she was given, which were no less important, by the way, um, to include childbirth and this, you know, 
actually being superior to Adam because she could birth, you know, carry and, and shall we say manufacture life, which Adam couldn't do. She, you know, part of that is why she thought she was superior and she should have the superior roles. It's, and, and she wanted to be, well, didn't work. She argued with God about it. And then she went betrayed Adam with demons and whatever. And I don't know exactly what that is, but you know, probably some guys at the honky tonk back in the old days. Um, and, you know, she quote unquote birthed demons into the world. And it's like, okay, well, it's very interesting. You know, as a kid, I was like, okay, well, it's interesting story. And then, you know, Adam, God comes and um, creates Eve out of Adam's ribs so that they're one, right? So it's not, they were made from the same materials and peers. They're, they're actually one. They're from the same the same being and that doesn't make you know unlike what's taught in the christian world uh at least in the 1054 post 1054 western schism christianity it teaches that that means the woman's subservient but that's not that's not the original um semitic belief right um Lilith then is out in the world and Lilith's children are constantly at war, you know, her demon children, which I think is a psychological reference, not a, uh, you know, an, an actual demonic as we know them again in the post 1054 world. Um, as you know, now I'm much older and I, and I'm think through these and I have an extraordinary daughter and she has an interesting mother because what do son? What do we do? We marry our mothers. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, Sometimes. yeah. More often um, than not, yeah. So, um, I've been looking at you know. Okay, well, unhealthy women. Uh, my whole life since I was a little kid. And some of them are extraordinarily intelligent and extraordinarily capable and extraordinarily gifted at psychological and emotional manipulation and control and blackmail. And there's a few number of other women that aren't. And I remember before we went to uh, deploy to Afghanistan, you know, I was told about all the patriarchy and this and that, but I get into Afghanistan and the men, you know, when you earn their trust and respect, and this is Pashtuns, so, you know, I can't speak to Hakani's and others, but to the Pashtuns, half the time those guys were trying to figure out how to protect their daughter or some other girl in the village from the mean other women in the village who were, yep. you know, trying to suppress and destroy the spirit of this young, you know, alive young girl so that, you know, she was broken and controllable and could be dominated by other women, you know, the unhealthy, nasty women in the community. And if that didn't work because the little girl was something uniquely, you know, extraordinary, like my young lady, uh, my daughter, um, then the women would badger and, and, and cajole and manipulate the man to do something horrible. <coughs> Excuse me. So, you know, all of this kind of stuck with me in my life. And, and then I, there are unhealthy women <coughs> and there are healthy women and unhealthy women identify healthy women when they're young and go after them. 
And all you got to do is be observant on the playground when you're a kid to see it. It's not like some fancy, you need some fancy PhD or whatever. Hell, when we were in college and drunk down at the bar on a Saturday night, you could see it playing out there, right? We have movies about it, you know, Heathers and, um, you know, the nasty cheerleader, you know, the tropes, right? Well, they're Mm -hmm. tropes for a reason because. That's right. So, and I remember reading decades ago, this is probably 30 years ago, some research on witch burning. And, you know, this is kind of where this thinking of, okay, unhealthy women are actually attacking healthy women early in life and at different stages in life. And they get men involved when, when the female only control mechanisms don't work. And I remember reading something and I can't remember where it was too many decades ago that the witch burning was a way in which unhealthy women in the community destroyed any healthy women uh, in that community. You know, women that were healers, right? Cause the witch, right? Well, they were healers. Well, most of what they were healing, they were just therapists. They listened and, and had empathy and compassion and they cared and they were intelligent and they could, work out you know this thing that women are are uniquely not solely but uniquely gifted at which is individual small-scale human interactions mm-hmm. um one-on-one well, they they also looked at them as more viable mates that were in competition with them well this is this that is was, the point right this right is the point so they couldn't control them. The women were actually solving problems in the community that then disrupted the un- the unhealthy matriarchy, as I call it. Um, and then w- how would the women do it? Well, they would make in you know the in, the way women character assassinating and you you know innuendos and all of that kind of stuff. And then they would get the men involved. But it wasn't the healthy men, you know, the healthy, good men would try to push back, et cetera. It was what we call simps today or whatever, right? It's it's that 80% of male population that never have children and everything, which is true throughout human history. Roughly 20% of males have had children and it's only slightly different now. Um, it was those men that the unhealthy women would get involved in doing horrible things to the healthy women to, you know, to, to maintain the, the power, the unhealthy matriarchy power structure, and the men would do it because, hope you know, maybe they might get a chance to have children with one of these women. And the more uh, more capable, the more cruel, the more mean and, and malicious a male might be, the higher his chances were to have ch- children with these ugly, no, I don't mean ugly, but I personally, psychologically, et cetera, you know, the, the resentful yeah. women, the resentful women. And it was an interesting um, paper that I was reading. And it said that this went on for something like 200 years. And that what happened is it decimated the female genetic pool in Western society. Because all of these women, you know, for a couple hundred years, right, uh, all across the the Christian world, this isn't just Catholics, by the way, if any fucking Protestant wants to point at Catholics, it was more Protestants that were doing this, especially in the 16 through the 1600s and the 1700s. Um, 
But point being is that the, this had wiped out most healthy women, right? So genetically, women who had healthy genes that would then enable that, that ensured that they had or gave them the higher propensity to have emotional, psychological stability and well-being and competence had got wiped wiped out of Western society over about a 200 to 400 year period. I don't remember the duration. And that this was just one of the mechanisms, right? The witch burning, because witch burning didn't happen all the time. Uh, there were other means and methods of this as well. And then again, many decades later or several decades later, I'm in Afghanistan. I see this, I see it, I, I see it playing out in front of me. Yep. And then I watched it happen with my own daughter, who is one of these just unique creatures. And I watched her teachers and principals when we, not in Japan, but when we moved back to the United States, I watched her teachers and principals devour my daughter who would stand up for people, who would figure out things, who was just being this bright shining star. And over about a three year period, I watched three, four year period with nothing I could do about it because heaven forbid I say anything as a well-educated white um, upper middle class, upper class guy. The moment I said anything, I was being a misogynist. I was this, I was that, a bigot, whatever. Never mind, they were destroying my daughter right in front of me. <clears throat> so the unhealthy matriarchy is a very real thing and it's basically been in power <clears throat> in western civilization but particularly in um western well actually even in eastern europe before look at who were the people that were closest to stalin they were mostly all women and they knew exactly what he was doing and they supported it and they turned in all kinds of people. Look at the, the uh, children that launched um, uh, Pol Pot's activities in Cambodia with school-age girls. So the unhealthy matriarchy, I believe very firmly has been in control and power from behind the scenes and has created this illusion of the patriarchy because if you're an unhealthy matriarch, you sure as hell don't want anybody to see you directly. You don't want anybody to be able to come after you directly. So you're going to hide behind, you know, the frailty and the oppression of women. You're going to hide behind male-dominated <clears throat> systems, etc. And you're going to put unhealthy, resentful males into all the positions of power and influence and enforcement that you possibly can to include positions to build wealth, to control the wealth building and others. It's, I mean, all of these complex, sophisticated ways in which the this unhealthy matriarchy can, can, can hide itself. Well, and who's its, who's its primary target? Healthy women. Right. Right. I, I think that that's really profound because I had similar thoughts towards third wave feminism and then this what third wave feminism begat in what they call intersectional feminism, which is essentially the the intersection of, of Marxism. It, it's interdisciplinary. It's Crenshaw. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so 
they they intersect uh, conflicts because it's a subset of conflict theory sociology, which you know, I, I'm an adherent of conflict theory sociology. A lot of people find that kind of hard to believe because it is rooted in Marx. Um, but it explains a lot when you're talking about why we do the things that we do. That's that's a very good explanation for it. I would say well, that resentful. Yeah, it's resentful right. women being resentful and then pairing up with right. resentful males to wage war on anybody that's healthy and whole and capable and, and to try and get into systems and institutions like education and therapy so that they can identify the healthy young girls primarily, but young girls and young boys and start destroying them early. Yep. You pointed out exactly what I was about to say is that <laughs> intersectional feminism is exactly that. It is the unsuitables, the resentfuls who get into those positions. You know, this is something that the, the late great Rush Limbaugh would call, you know, if you look at a, uh, the feminist convention and it's just a bunch of women that nobody wants, you know, and, and of course he was doing that in, in part, he's telling the truth, but the, the other part of it, it, it was not an incorrect observation, but it was also trolling the left as he, he had a master class in doing, but it was very true. Uh, they hated it because it was true. And, and that is another control mechanism well, because uh, whenever, whenever we would see, uh, you know, the, the girls that would come through these courses, you know, and they kind of would, uh, you know, real skeptical of a lot of stuff. Oh, well, you know, you're, you're not down with the feminist cause and you're not, you know, and, and, and of course we observed a lot of this. Um, and what that was, was that gatekeeping phenomena. And it, it was exactly the same. My experience with passions was exactly the same. Um, and, and a, a really great film on the topic, which ironically enough is a B film. And, you know, we're coming up on Halloween. Um, it was a, it was one of the old British uh, hammer horror films, with Christopher mm -hmm. Lee, uh, you know, Christopher Lee, legendary SAS man himself, you know, it's, legend uh the guy's a legend he recorded a black metal album too yeah he, he's he he that guy was man he was he was really the more you dig into christopher lee the, the more i've dug into christopher lee the more i love the guy i think he's he's true western original but um yeah he he did a film called in, in the united states it was called the Witchfinder general and in Britain, it was called uh, the canker worm, I believe, mm. Mm. Um, or the conqueror worm, the conqueror worm. That's what it was called. But it was about, um, um, oh, I just had the guy's name on the tip of my tongue. Um, anyhow, it, it was during the, the English civil war and Cromwell, Cromwell, during, during Cromwell, um, Matthew Hopkins, that was mm. his name, Matthew Hopkins. He was, he invented a title for himself, the Witchfinder general. And he went around essentially yeah. women in these different, uh, uh, hamlets that he would go to were pointing out women that they called seductresses. Yep. And yep. you got to burn them. You got to burn that witch. Yep. And so they, they would submit them to physical trials that they knew, there's yeah. no way that you can survive this. You know, there's no way that I'm going to give you a hundred pound stone to hold 
And if you can still float while holding it, then, you know, obviously you're a witch, but, but you're going to die anyway. It's catch 22. And so this, it, it was a horror film about that. And that's uh, real because that's exactly what happened. Down underneath, what happened. This, down underneath this, you know, people maybe think, okay, well, you know, this is a hyperbole or it's <clears throat> gotchaism or sensationalism, but just take a step back down underneath is genetic competition. And genes are ruthlessly competitive. Ruthlessly. They have to be. Otherwise, they, they don't um, meet the evolutionary forcing function, that ad adaption function. So down underneath, it's just genetic warfare. All right, well, who wages genetic warfare? Women. Because 80% of women that have lived have had children, only 20% of men. Men die younger. Many men die before even transfer childbirth, at least historically. Women over time tend to have more of the assets, like dramatically more of the assets, like 80% of the world plus of the 80, uh, 80 plus percent of the world's assets are either owned outright or are controlled by women. So, and the men go away to war and aren't even there most of the time in classical societies. So who runs? Shit, just run amok while they're gone? No, the women run it. And they get to pick who's, you know, so what is genetic warfare? It's who gets to have children, with whom, with what access to what resources associated with that pairing, and with what obligations tied to those things. That's the reality of all things, everything. Cut all this other crap, all this other complex stuff and all this fancy bullshit that people talk about and, you know, the Jean-Paul Sartres of the world and the Kimberly Crenshaws of the world and everybody else. And it's like, yeah, that's all bullshit. <clears throat> Down underneath is genetic warfare that's existed since there were single-celled, uh, for uh, uh, only single-celled communities on Earth, you know, single-celled life. Uh, communities of single-celled life, which is really what our whole body is anyways. You know, it's about 100 trillion eukaryotic cells that, <coughs> excuse me, that make up our body and four to 500 trillion cells that make up our biome, both in the intestine and on our, on our skin and in our sinuses, et cetera. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> All that genetic warfare that started four and a half billion years ago is still playing out still directs and drives everything. Well, <laughs> if you have strong, capable people who, and this gets to the eternal war, excuse me, I need to drink some water. <clears throat> if you have at different periods in time, <clears throat> strong, capable people that build societies and build, build economies and build financial systems, you know, things that, um, dramatically X multiple the resources you have and your security, you wind up with systems, processes, institutions that, that in time, if you're not exceedingly careful, get corrupted, co-opted, and completely taken over by resentful people who can't naturally compete in the genetic, you know, competition. They can't compete 
with people who did really well in life's lotteries, looks, intelligence, height, athletic ability, emotional regulation, you know, all of these life lotteries that we all, uh, that we were all shaped by before, you know, when it was just the sperm and the egg and, and even back before that, you know, the sperm and the egg to create them, et cetera, right? So <clears throat> we benefited from life's lotteries. Other people benefit to different degrees. And there's a whole lot of people, you know, 30 to 50% of, of any group of people that just didn't come out so well in life's lotteries. And so how, how are they going? I mean, look at this, like study chimp, chimp, you know, uh, chimp packs and, and how female chimps use lesser, lower status males to control relationships and they sneak and give them, you know, sexual access and, you know, all study bonobos and all of this. It's, it's, we're just primates. We do the same shit. It's genetic competition It's genetic competition in social species. We, we build systems and institutions even many of the systems and institutions we have were built by the non-competitive people to give them an artificial competitive environment or um, advantage mm -hmm. in the genetic warfare and the systems that were created by healthy people, right? Like when Alexander the Great comes through and wipes out all your unhealthy systems, <laughs> right? <coughs> and replaces or Ragnar Lofbrok or, you know, for the Vikings and, you know, uh, even, um, uh, Napoleon, that's what he was doing, right? He was <coughs> going through and blowing out all these unhealthy systems that, you know, enabled the unhealthy people to have an unfair competitive advantage for this genetic warfare. <coughs> um, <coughs> excuse me. Here in the West, post-World War II, but this really started before, um, this is who's dom to come to dominate, these resentful people. They're resentful they didn't come out well in life's lotteries. They're resentful that other people just naturally compete better in this genetic competition. And so they've corrupted and co-opted all of these systems, and then they lie and hide. And, and I'm going to give you an example, right? Because, again, you can also think, ah, well, you know, this is just your, your opinion, man, using the dude, right? <laughs> That's one of my favorite That's characters. like your opinion, man. It's like you're just you're but but think of it this way <laughs> we the people who used to go into our universities were the were literally the smartest people the best connected the best resourced you know up before world war ii right was or they were just really smart people who worked really hard and earned their way in because that happened too going all the way back right to the beginning of universities <clears throat> what happened after world war ii however is we wanted to get everybody educated right supposedly get everybody educated um and we needed to get women into schools because we you know the industrialists wanted them working in the factories for the labor and the lower cost labor and the bureaucratic state wanted them for the taxes right because that if you have two people in the house working, you're double your tax base right there, right? So we needed to get women into, you know, into the workforce and, and uh, into the taxpaying base. And we needed to get unhealthy, even more unhealthy women into positions of power and control so they can, you know, further the unhealthy matriarchy, et cetera. 
Well, back when we had status males primarily and status females, but primarily status males that went to universities, a lot of them were physical, you know, it, well, you didn't just go study some <clears throat> esoteric program. You had martial programs. Many of them served in the military. Many of them had been in combat. They had fought duels. It was a man's, you know, you might be an act, you know, go to a Oxford, but you were still a fucking man's man. Period. Yeah. Well, you look you, at somebody like Teddy Roosevelt. Exactly. You know, yeah. Teddy exactly. Roosevelt was the, the uh, I think, was America's greatest president by a wide margin. I don't know in, about in that. In my but, opinion. But yeah, well, then I don't know much about it, presidents, he, but, but he, he is he, the epitome he was the of a man's man. Yeah. 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 No, exactly. Um, so what happened in the, <clears throat> excuse me, starting in the late 1800s is we started to get, uh, non-elite universities like the, uh, land grant universities in the United States, um, et cetera. It wasn't just the traditional aristocracy which had to be men's men or you were a fop and nobody respected you anyways and and most of them didn't get to have kids unless they were ludicrously wealthy and you know yada yada but point being is that here in the united states in particular starting in the 1800s the late 1800s when in the gilded era where lots of wealth was created suddenly you wound up with a whole lot of non-man's man guys going to college trying to get laid in fields of study that were the humanities and sociology. You're one you always touch on, yeah. right? Ah, it's it, it's so, a fact. So what would happen? And then this took off after uh, World War One and World War II in particular, the GI Bill. So what happened? You get a whole lot of males that didn't do so well in life's lotteries, but they're able to go to college and get a degree in some whatever fuck all field. And what are they trying? What are they going to do? What, why are they doing that? They want to compete genetically. They want to earn the right to have children with a woman. Well, how might they skew all of their academic work? And, and I'll give you an example again. You know, some people might do it. This, this Stanford professor who, or Stanford or Harvard, I don't remember which, who faked the racial bias data for decades <laughs> that all of these other papers and books and everything else yeah. and government programs are based off. Do you think males, lower status males haven't been doing that <laughs> for over a century to get fucking laid, right? Um, By doing what? Academic bullshit, academic programs. And this is where we get down to, there's no gender and there's no, you know, biology doesn't matter. This is the inevitable result of simp males in the academic program for over a century, skewing everything they were doing so they can hopefully get fucking laid and have kids and then support, you know, in the, that, what they're doing. Well, you're not, I don't care if you go to university, some healthy woman that's come out well in life's lottery, still not going to fuck you and still isn't going to have kids with you. So who are the women that these men are skewing their efforts, their academic you know, research too. It's the unhealthy women. Yep. And you're going to wind up with more and more and more of those in the university system. And in now they've, you know, that's what 70 some odd percent 
of college graduates in over the last 20 years women and that number is increasing because men are saying fuck it right yep no, um, that 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 is a demonstrable fact and that so, is a very scary fact too when you look at the stem fields not the humanities humanities you can take them or leave them there's no yeah. and, and i'm gonna tell you as a sociologist there is no real work that's being done in the humanities field that's groundbreaking or is going to nope. change well, society in any positive way. No. In fact, all of the things that we have seen over the past, well, let's be generous and just say the past decade. We go back further than that. But the past decade that has been negatively impactful on Western civilization, specifically Western yeah. civilization has come directly out of sociology and psychology. Those two. Well, and 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 law and other things. It, and and it, it comes out of the humanities fields. Right. Right. It comes out of the non-hard science, hard engineering, hard mathematics fields, although they've been corrupting that as well. But it, again, it comes out of the fields of study where for more than a century, there've been lower status males writing papers and selling lies about you know, misogyny and all, not to say that there isn't a male oppression and there isn't bad men and there's, yeah, all that stuff happens. Right. But <clears throat> real men, you know, the naturally healthy men who are protectors by nature. Why do you think we people, again, this is like mislabeling bully. Yeah. Some of that isn't bullying. That fucking kid's a predator and we know it. And somebody needs to knock him on his fucking ass and let him know if you keep up this behavior, one of us is going to put you down hard, maybe permanent. Well, you have people who are maybe predatory themselves or who are just whatever fucking reason they're resentful, et cetera. And they write papers and they talk about, you know, the bullies and the, you know, this and that. And then they lump the healthy, natural, protective people with bullies, et cetera. You wind up with the natural, healthy, protected people just stepping back, going, "Okay, yeah." Okay. Well, you know, apply I'm gonna protect mine, but okay. Yeah. Apply that mentality to the military. You know, you and I have both been in those units where, when, when we were junior soldiers, at different times. Yeah. But when we came in, there was the the difference between, and I was explained this. I I was. I was in the army in, in kind of a, a unique era where a lot of the wall to wall counseling stuff was still around, but it was, <laughs> it was going away. And, and that was when, you know, the toxic leaders have no place in the army was, was habitually on the, the front well, of the army. Nothing but toxic and, leadership because we get yes. away with wall to wall counseling. It, yes, exactly. Exactly. And that dovetails exact, the exact point I'm about to make is that I had a, a, a wonderful, wonderful leader who was a hard ass. He was a hard ass. He didn't take shit off of anybody. I mean, he, it, this guy was, and, and you, you fucking feared the ground that he walked on. Because of the way that he carried himself, but that was exactly the way a leader needed to be, and and I will never forget he he pulled all of us uh, junior NCOs. I, I was a junior NCO at the time. He pulled all of us in, and he said, "You know, do you know what the difference between hazing and earning your place is?" Yeah. 
I want you to tell me, and he would point to each guy. So I want you to tell me your definition, you to tell me your definition. And all of us were kind of scared shitless because we're thinking like, is this, you know, are, are we getting in trouble here? Are we on trial here? Are we like, you know, are we going to get hazed? Are we about to get sent down the road? Like what, what the fuck is going on? And, and when we all got done, Saying, well, I don't remember what bullshit I spouted out. It was just some word salad that I spit out. Um, Irrelevant. But he said, the difference between hazing and earning your keep is the training value at the end. If you can point to the training value, then it's not hazing. And, And that should be your only guide. Now go forth and do. Make soldiers, make men. And being in the infantry when I was a young man, what is it the infantry does? What is the purpose of the infantry? Take hold terrain and kill, kill shit. People. Kill fucking people. Get shot. Get stabbed. Get blown the fuck up. Keep moving. Protect the guys on your left and right. Don't lose your shit. Yep. Obey or lawful orders. And go out and fucking keep moving forward and kill fuckers yep. that are trying to kill you. I hope, hopefully, unfortunately, I think we've been killing a whole lot of people we shouldn't have been killing for the last 20 some odd years. And I think we're about to do it again and it mm-hmm. and it's wrong and we should not be doing it. And we need to, our officers, senior, excuse me, diverge, divert a little bit, but our senior officers need to wake the fuck up to what a lawful and unlawful order is. Because well, we've been killing, we killed 2 million fucking people in the last 20 years. All of those, I will I will take some exceptions. The, the initial stuff in Afghanistan to go after certain people and certain targets that certain units have taken out, some of those are lawful. Those are straight up lawful orders. But most all of the others are unlawful orders. But the point is, is this. If you can't take some fucking hazing, for the boys that have to be able to trust you when fucking everything's going wrong, you shouldn't fucking be there. Yep. And there's a Thousands second piece to that that I that took me a long time to understand until somebody actually just pointed it out to me. Because I've always been a fairly serious guy my whole life, and a lot of that has to do with the violence and chaos of my childhood, I think. But and par- partially, I'm half fucking Scottish, and it's just the way we are. We're assholes. <laughs> and we're <serious. laughs> Right. That's right. That's right. Too blunt and too straightforward. But, you know, um, and I was I was in my 40s when I finally and I had one of my guys on my team in first group tell me, dude, take a fucking joke. And why? Because if you can't take a joke, we can't trust you. Yep. Yep. Right. So there's two things in male in in the world of man, not in human society, but in the world of men. You better be able to take some hazing. But guess what? There's two things that happen in hazing. One is exactly what I articulated. It's a test of can you take some shit and keep moving? There's a second part of hazing that nobody fucking talks about. If it goes too far, you better be able to stand to it and put it to an end. Doesn't matter if you get your ass knocked down, but if it goes too far, which 
you know, fucking idiot drunks get together doing stupid shit. Sometimes it goes too far. You better oh, be yeah. ready to throw back, right? You need to know, and that's the thing about men, right? Especially men of, of uh, protector instincts. You need to know when you need to be, when you need to just take some hard, rough shit and deal with it. But you also need to know when it crosses the line into what's dangerous and unacceptable. And you need to be able to recognize that difference on your own and then respond appropriately, even if that response is violence. Yep. Right. You need that's the thing about hazing that people don't uh, don't talk about. It's the same thing with this, quote unquote, bullying. Easily 80 percent of what is called bullying today is not bullying. It's no. a kid seeing another kid doing some bad shit, some nasty shit to certain people around and putting him in his fucking place. It becomes bullying when it's just an asshole being an asshole and, or it's somebody likes to hurt somebody. And because we have these two, right? There's, there are some people that will look for somebody doing something wrong so that they can go on leash on them. And that's not acceptable either. Right. Yeah, we, we see that a lot on social media, especially among oh, uh, you well, see it nonstop. I, nonstop. Unfortunately, I see a lot of it uh, on what would be called the right. I think we need to stop calling people left and right, by the way. I think we need to be calling yeah. people resentfuls and mentally fucking insane because that's really what they are. And <laughs> there is no left or right. You know, I might fall okay. into that ladder camp. I don't know, man. I'm not well, resentful as as, of other people. As long as you're not so resentful, I might, you, you'll I work might it be. Out. I, I might be mentally insane. I don't know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as long as it works for you. It um, might be back to that thing my mother said. As long as it doesn't, as long as whatever you do doesn't have to get paid for by other people, you're good. Yes. Um, but you know, back to back to the comment, and and this is. So back to the, the unhealthy matriarchy. <clears throat> well, who's promoting this anti, you know, anti-bullying, anti-hazing, or all of this? It's unhealthy women and the unhealthy men that are trying to get laid, that are trying to you know, be the, the allies of the unhealthy women. Why? Because they don't want to be, they don't want us to, to have the capacity to prevent them from doing the malevolent, resentful, evil shit that they're doing. This is how unhealthy matriarchy works. And unfortunately, it did start in the universities, but it's also, you know, the city slicker, the, you know, we've known about these unhealthy males um, and unhealthy women since the beginning of time, back to the whole concept and story of Lilith, the whole story of um, uh, Cain and Abel. Right. It's the, it's it's all right there in front of us. Down underneath is this genetic lotteries that some people didn't come out well in. They're resentful. They get together with other resentful people and they tr- they create these artificial status hierarchies that allow them to have some kind of status. So that they can possibly participate in genetic warfare. And really it is, it's not possibly participate. They possibly might have kids, but they all participate in the genetic warfare. And if we don't have the capacity to stand to it because we don't have healthy women because they've been wiped out by the witch hunts, which are still ongoing, like what is the fucking shit with trans men, whatever, mentally insane men in female fucking sports. 
That's anti-female. That is that is the most that is a modern day fucking witch hunt. Yeah. If you don't bow down to our insanity and the unhealthy matriarchs, the unhealthy matriarchs will put men in your sport, in your locker room, increased rape, increased sexual assault, all of this. This is unhealthy women and the simp fucking men and weak men that and evil men that support them putting all this shit out there. It's still the same as the witch hunts. So we have got to take, we really have got to take a step back and stop paying attention to all this bullshit language, higher level stuff and understand this is genetic warfare. It's ancient. It's all about who gets to have kids with who, with what resources and what obligations associated. That's it. And then what we have to do again, like some of the conversations I had in Afghanistan you know, between action and between missions, et cetera, with Pashtun men who are village leaders who are trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to protect that little girl, their, theirs or somebody else's, who is a bright little shining star in that community and could be a great mother and a great matriarchal leader in that community one day. How the fuck were they going to protect her through those critical years, which are about five to 17 because if you can protect them in that in that range where they're doing their their real sociological development, right, and and having their first kids and all that in most cla- uh, um, uh, more traditional societies, right, older societies, then she's pretty good. She knows how to pick a healthy male and not get picked up. <laughs> there you go, right. So, right. We have got to remember, we have to realize this. Men don't own the world. Women do. Men didn't create civilization. Women did. Men protect it. Men figure out how things work, how to, how to build the things, how to protect the same things, how to preserve the things. Men are very good at the abstract. They're very good at the large scale. You know, with very few exceptions, most men are not very good at the small scale. We're not very good in the one-on-one social, you know, prolonged social engagements. Women are. Women's women. So we'll, we'll take a, a prime example of that, right? You and I have touched on this before. The longest lived patrilineal, so male to male to male, right? dynasties last about 300 years at their longest extent. Most of them are less than that, 50 to 80, you know, three, two to three generations. Sometimes it's five to seven, sometimes a little longer. Matrilineal dynasties, barring some, you know, major cataclysmic shock are pretty much indefinite. And in Europe, if you want to look at the, if you really take a step back and there's some great videos on YouTube that, that a young man did this uh, work, map it out. But the longest lived dynasty in Europe is matrilineal. And it's 1100 years old. The second one is 900 some odd years old. That's the house of Eleanor, Eleanor of Aquitaine. The first one's house of Garcenda. And these these and matrilineal unbroken daughter to daughter to daughter to daughter they're still there today and they are still sitting on the thrones of europe and the titles of europe and many other places and if you realize that that it's the women that have been the aristocracy you know the nobility and the royal houses in in europe through this time 
And then you look, go back and actually read the histories properly. You'll realize that a lot of times it was the woman's family and her resources that allowed that man to be the king or the duke. Now he might, he has to have, you know, the pedigree as well, unless he's, you know, raised to the peerage, et cetera. But often his, his right to the throne or his right to even try for it came through his mother. And a lot of these dukes and earls and kings and all of that were funded by their wives. Look at Ferdinand and Isabella. It was Isabella's money and Isabella's family line. Yep. Ferdinand was no. So what happens is these female matriarchal figures elevate the man. And they elevate the man. Now he's still got to have pedigree and he's still got to have capacity. He's got to be extraordinarily capable, right? But the man signs a bond with her family for a dowry, right? And what is the bond that he, you know, what's the contract he's signing with the family to protect the woman and her assets and her children for as many generations as he's alive and to train his sons to do the same? And sometimes that's just, you know, running an estate. Sometimes it's running a kingdom because that's the level of the woman and the lever of her assets. It's the same on a bride price, right? So dowries and bride prices work the same. This is the same in Africa. It's the same all over the world, right? What's the bride price? You know, where the, where the groom, groom's family pays for the bride. What's well, the same thing. I'm making a deposit and I'm, setting that deposit against the commitment that I will protect this woman, her assets, her family, and her children for as long as I'm alive. And if I don't, I forfeit the bride price, which will in, you know, I'm buying into this family. So I'm getting compensation, not just in the form of the bride, but in terms of the family and the resources and the relationships and, you know, all of these things. So we have, you know, and I had this conversation with Bram Connolly. I don't know if you know who Bram is. He's a former SASR commander uh, turned author. He's got a series of books uh, and he has a podcast called Warrior You, I think, if I remember correctly. I had this, I was pretty severely brain injured at the time and was drinking wine. So I might not have been as articulate as I probably should have uh, back in, I think, 2019 when I did this podcast. It was the first one I did. And I had this conversation just brief, right? That if we want to turn the world around, we need to stop lying to ourselves about how the world works and what what's re what the conflicts are really about and who we're really dealing with. And what we really need to do as if we are healthy males of the protector archetype, we need to seek out healthy young women, healthy women, matriarchs and they are still out there some of them survived that you know up to 17 20 years of age and they're hiding at least they're hiding themselves right so it's not all unhealthy women out there there are good women good healthy women a lot of them have to hide a lot of them have to mask themselves etc and what what we need to do if we are going to survive what's happening and what's coming which we can't stop the resentful women, the unhealthy matriarchy is just too powerful and it's moving, it's making its move for a massive genetic culling, shall we say. Um, we need to seek out healthy women and we need to figure out how to protect them. Whether they're 
five years old or 25 years old or 55 years old. And we need to put all of our energy and effort into figuring out how do we assess, how do we identify, and how do we protect and preserve? Because if we don't do that, if we don't stop the witch hunts, if we don't stop the witch burning and all of its complex, clever, malicious, modern forms, we don't have a society or a civilization and there is no West. We are done. If we can't, because it is our matriarchs, the house of Garcenda, the house of Eleanor, the other great houses, lesser houses, right? By Led by women. And some of them are resentful too, right? But it is the great female lines that is Western civilization. And I don't mean matriarchy is in the women are in power and they're in total control and all of that. It's not, it's not that simple, but they are the continuity. It is their children and more, and more importantly, their daughters who pass down civilization. We create it, we protect it, we fix it when it gets fucked up, but it is the women of our civilization who are the keepers of it, who pass it forward. And we've allowed unhealthy women and their weak, unhealthy men to sell us a lie of a patriarchy and misogyny and all this oppression and all this other stuff. We've allowed them to enslave us. We've allowed them to destroy for centuries the healthy women amongst us. I think that is, <laughs> that's why you're here, brother. It, it, that is incredibly well said. It is, I think that, that you are absolutely spot on. Um, and because we have had a, and we have experienced, especially particularly in the past 60 years, a diminished role of true matriarchy. And we've replaced it with this artificial social structure uh, known as feminism, which is, it's phony. This, this is phony. And, and we're, we're seeing that now. We're seeing the logical conclusion of this. I think, we, you know, we were talking about uh, the, the simps. Um, there is no greater simp in the world, in my opinion, than a male feminist. I think that that is the most uh, vile creature to, to They're predators. The earth. They're predators. Yeah. And there's yeah. all kinds of research that's been done on this, by the way, that the, the guys that commit the rapes, are the feminist guys. Yep. Because they're deceivers and they use that as, as ways to get access to women, right? To get close proximity. Mm -hmm. you, you never find a guy that comes from our, you know, from the healthy male world, the strong, capable, did well in life lotteries world, who's a rapist or a sexual yeah. assaulter. Not one. They all come from the weak, lower class, lower status male world. And the crazy thing is that you can, unhealthy women, shape and direct that against healthy women. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, it's a, a worldview that is 
sorely missed, I think, especially in contemporary American culture specifically. We could extend that to, to at least part of Western Europe. Um, France in, in particular, Britain, certainly there, there's a case could be made there. Sweden, especially. Um, Scandinavian countries are in so much trouble. Yeah, they, so, they, they are. Sweden is at the unhealthy, unhealthy matriarchy dominated. Yep. Unbelievable. It, it's, but, but we, we could dive way deeper into that, but coming up on an hour and 15 minutes, you know, the last podcast that we did, I said that that's the fastest hour ever. And then, you know, we did the live show, which was two hours went by like that. And then, of course, um, you know, just just coming on right now. It's like, oh, I spent an hour of that one trying to get on the show. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. That's how you get to sort it out. So when, when uh, we come back on the air uh, this Thursday, there will not be a Sons of Liberty live because I'm going to be out in Missouri uh, getting ready for the Signals Intelligence course. Get the three day course out there. But once I'm back, I'll be back the following week. We're definitely going to have uh, a live show on. So bring a couple of bottles of, of the really good stuff. <laughs> the top shell. Uh, we'll do some French this time. Do some, do some, I, you know, I mean, we've had this discussion numerous times. I'm, I'm a Spanish wine kind of guy. Yeah. So. Well, that, that's fine. You drink it. I'll have it. Italian wine is, is good. Uh, you know, right, well, I, 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 I especially like Prosecco. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of, I, I prefer Prosecco to Champagne mm. uh, any day of the week. Gives me a headache. Although, Cava, Cava, Spanish Cava is my favorite. If I'm going to mm. drink something bubbly. That's And I have a choice in the matter. It's it's going <laughs> to be Cava. I'm a big fan of the Spaniards, man. I think that... that uh, well, I just came back from... No, I just came back from Spain. Uh, I spent oh, a week and a half there, so in Madrid... I love it, um, but I am a northern. I am a northern European, and so I, I enjoy to visit. And I, um, I have immense respect for Spanish culture and society. And it, they are a civilizational people, and we forget that. Mm -hmm. um, but I am, you know, I am a Northwest European, and uh, you know, I don't completely understand the Spaniards. I'm studying the language actually right now. It's one of the languages I hadn't studied previously. Um, so I'm getting a little bit of, you know, because if you want to know us people really learn their language, right? And and learn how they express idioms and metaphors, et cetera. But mm -hmm. uh, Southern Europeans are very different than Northwest Europeans. And, yep. you know, we know this from, neural studies and linguistics that different languages actually create different neural pathways in the brain. And so mm -hmm. we actually do think physically at the physical level, we do think different in if from the different linguistic systems that we come from and the English speaking peoples are civilizational people. And we do have a different way of physically processing sensory internal and external sensory input than the Spanish people do. So I, I appreciate, and I have a lot of respect, as I said, for the culture and society, but it's not mine. Right. Uh, so. No, I, I, I love Spain though. 
love mm-hmm. Spain. I love I love Spanish culture and dealing with Spaniards almost as much as I love dealing with Cubans. I love Cuban culture. <laughs> I, love, Cuba. I love yeah. Cuban culture. Well, again, that's Spanish, people. right? So the, the, yeah. the Spaniards are a civilizational people. We forget yep. that because the country of Spain is in Europe, but their civilization is in South and Central America and the Caribe. Yep. But they're a civilizational people with hundreds of millions of people or a billion people or whatever. Uh, and so we, we forget that Spain is a civilizational culture and language and people and yeah. yeah. No, nah, but I, I was that way with Mexico too when, when mm-hmm. I was living down in the border region. Mm-hmm. Um, and absolutely love Mexico, love, love Mexican culture, northern Mexican culture, specifically Norteño culture, mm-hmm. was just, I, I, I loved it. And hardworking, loved it. Hardworking people, man. And they love life. They love life. Yeah. That, that was what I loved so much was yeah. their their zest for life, their zest for family. Yeah, was it was so deep, and yeah. they knew it. It was it reminded me a lot, um, you know, and, and being here in, in Central North Carolina, working with with a lot of Mexicans when I was growing up, they were doing a lot of day labor work, and and you know, it, and that's one thing. But actually being immersed in the culture of, of Southwest Texas and far West Texas um, and, and really getting to experience that in a, a very deep way was was awesome. Like it, yeah. it, that was that was one of the, the coolest uh, cultural experiences, I think, that, that anybody could have. And, um, man, well, it's it rather was it's rather awesome. important because they are the future of America. They are yeah. the largest, the, increasingly the largest demographic. Um, they are the ones with most of the children in the schools. Um, and the highest birth so, rate. Yeah, well, it, with, that's capping out, actually. But um, they are the future of America. You know, So whatever United States is going to come out of the chaos of the next, you know, into the 2030s, it will be a partnership between... Europeans, you know, those of European descent and Latin and Hispanic peoples. We will, you know, collectively, we will be 80%, 70 plus 80% of the populace of the country. So whatever comes out and they will be a by, I don't remember what it is, 2050, whatever, they will actually surpass us in numbers. Mm-hmm. And so they are. And that will only continue to rise because we stopped having kids a couple of generations ago. So over the next 50 years, America will become theirs predominantly and increasingly. And I'm okay with that. They're damn good people. They're hardworking. They're family oriented. And they are a very good mix of Americas and Spanish European culture. They are Westerners. And they may be the savior, at least in this hemisphere, of Western civilization. And I don't say maybe. I mean, they will be if that's how this 
conflict phase goes. They will be the ones, and oh, by the way, better be that they're protective of their mothers and sisters. That's a fact. I mean, it's right? an indisputable fact. You know, we stopped being, and that's where we failed. And we still got time to turn that around, right? But they don't need to turn that around. They already are there. Yeah, it, it, I mean, if you, if you don't need to turn around, you you've remained on the right path, and then you've already got a leg up. Yeah. You know, as, as far as contemporary American society goes, man, you know, I mean, there's just not a whole lot of of social structures that I see that are. Oh, it turns around like that. Check. We, we got to go through this. We, we have to break the unhealthy matriarchy that's happening right now. It's bankrupting itself. It's showing itself for the evil, malicious thing that it is. They're yeah. going to fight it out because what do resentfuls and unhealthy matriarchs and their weak men do? They try to force you back. And I went through a bad divorce and all the and years of my mother, et cetera. They try to force you to continue to support and to buy into their malevolent scheme but we're at we're beyond the point now where we can't sustain the malevolent scheme anymore unfortunately they they don't give up power we have to take it from them and that's what's being negotiated i mean we're still just beginning to wake up to that we're still trying all other remedies but at some point this goes hot and when it goes hot, before it goes hot, we have to figure out who we're going to preserve because we can't fucking save everybody or preserve everybody. And who we need to preserve needs to be healthy women and the healthy men that secure and preserve them. And then whatever, you know, however long that goes, you know, Neil Howe says, you know, late 20s, I think this cycle stretches out into the 30s. And he's articulated that might be the case too. But through the conflict years, we need to protect and preserve healthy women. And what do we need to protect and preserve them from? Unhealthy women and unhealthy men. I agree completely. Whenever you see green and pink hair, don't walk, run. That one doesn't get preserved. <laughs> See, that's they, the it, thing. I, 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 I created a meme that I put out there right on Twitter, et cetera. It's like, I don't have yeah. to hate you. I don't have to think less of you. I don't have to revile you. All I have to do is not protect you. Yep. I don't have it's to hate you. I don't have to fight you. I just don't have to protect you. No. Just turn your back. It's self-correcting well, problem. I'm not going to turn my back. I get fucking stabbed in the back. but. <laughs> <laughs> so never turn turn, never ever turn the back never 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 (laughs) anyway anyway man mind-blowing hour almost an hour and a half mind-blowing conversation as always brother thank you so much for being here well appreciate you for having me you have a great night Absolutely. And folks, check out E.M. Burlingame's books that you can find on Amazon as Rome Burns and The Eternal War. 
both wonderful, wonderful deep thoughts going into that. A lot of long-term view uh, that is in both of those titles. And uh, you, you really, really need to check them out. Anyway, with that said, folks, Store. Go check it out. All of the things that you need to get ready for the coming storm. Got over there. New products are being added weekly at this point. Um, and it is quickly uh, becoming really something that's, that's pretty, pretty awesome. Folks, keep your heads on straight. Stay squared away. And I will talk to you again very, very soon. This is NC Scout. Out.